0: So we come to the word this morning from the book of Acts chapter 4. And I will read you these verses uh, as you are uh, stay seated. But let's meditate together on God's word. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them... Father, we ask that you would take our minds that are sometimes sluggish, our hearts that need to be jolted, our bodies that may be tired and weary. We pray that you would renew us by your word this morning and that your spirit would come and work in our midst, pointing us to Christ, convicting us of sin and building us up in your truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So. We had a wedding this past week, and I've often heard things when, as it relates to wedding, people utter the slogan, "Oh, the honeymoon is over." And so, uh, Carlton and Megan are enjoying their honeymoon, I think, down there in uh, Gatlinburg, if I'm not mistaken. But when you hear that statement, "The honeymoon's over," that's not only a statement that good times may be past, but it's kind of a revealing comment about our view of marriage. To say the honeymoon's over with a twinkle in your eye is a little bit funny, but it's probably also a way to admit that we really don't sometimes enjoy our marriages. And so that slogan even unintentionally implies that we don't sometimes to expect to enjoy our marriages. So we, we have a few good trips. We have a romance. We have a honeymoon. But that slogan implied that from there on, after the early days of the honeymoon, marriage becomes an act of drudgery or or doldrums. So Christians might consider using that phrase lest we advertise our, excuse me, we might consider using that phrase less, lest we advertise our poor marriages. So I'll be candid with you for a moment. I, for one, am thankful that my marriage is together and stable Thankful to the Lord very much, now that I'm older and able to look back over the years since saying I do, I think that's one of the most important surprises of my life that Beth Ann is still here by my side. <laughs> Beth Ann has chosen to honor her vow before God, um, even when I don't lead sometimes in a God honoring way. But yet my marriage continues to grow even when I am difficult. So, in fact, that's how God designed marriages to be realistically. When we marry in the faith, our spouse, knowing our weaknesses firsthand, manifests Christ-like forgiveness on a weekly, sometimes even a daily basis. So marriage, I would call it grace in weakness. So as God grants us humility and spirit, we find ourselves admitting And maybe saying to ourselves, you know, I don't deserve my spouse, but God has granted the grace to remain in this estate. It is a true blessing from God. So the honeymoon may be over, but you know, there are other good trips to take. There's also the satisfaction of seeing a godly heritage being passed on through our children and to our grandchildren. The Bible depicts, if you'll stop and think about it, our relationship to Christ. As if we, the church, were married to Christ. So can you imagine the Lord in heaven after a couple of hundred years looking around at his bride saying, Oh no, the honeymoon's over. It's going to be a long eternity together. <laughs> Thankfully he doesn't take that tact. People say the same thing about the church. i tell you what I'm going to do with that buzz. Can I have that other microphone? I'll just hold it. People say the same things about the church. But in 1993, a young minister came to minister in southern Appalachia. He had a quick and fond reception, as what happens with new ministers, and at least with ministers who understand their calling and invest in the people. Anyway, this young minister hit a snag or two and ran into some problems, and critics began to wag their finger and say, well, the honeymoon is over. But you see, this young minister didn't quit. He said, you know, it's going to be just fine. I'm going to honor my calling and my commitment to enjoy the bride of Christ more and more, even when she acts unbecoming. And I can honestly say to you, that's the way I feel about the two most important things in my life, my wife and Christ's church. It's amazing, something for which I'm very grateful, that both a deep-seated joy has set in as time goes on. And both of those are more cherished, even in their imperfect state, at least by this sinner that stands before you today. So we fast forward. Here we are. I'm profoundly grateful to Pastor Carl. I'm profoundly grateful to all of you as a patient congregation for welcoming our family two years ago to continue our ministry here in southern West Virginia and serve in a very much a secondary role at Daniel's Bible Church, just the opportunity to serve. I'm very grateful. If you think you've got it bad, uh, pity my poor wife who has to live with me longer than you do. But this morning I want you to look at the fourth chapter of Acts and I want to try to work out this thesis of one of the author in my preparation for this sermon who invoked this phrase about the passage before us. He said, is the honeymoon over for the church in the fourth chapter of Acts? By that I intend and by the first flush of enthusiasm and, and blessing here that we see is the church now about to be dashed upon the reefs. Will the joy of being a Christian turn sour? Once Pentecost is over, now the church faces its first real testing. Is this honeymoon over? So let's tarry on and see, shall we? More than one author has said that the main character in Acts chapters 1 through 3 is the Holy Spirit. But now we begin to see a turn. And some people say that the main character beginning in chapter 4 is Satan, even though he stays Behind the scenes, because he's bringing everything he can against Christ's church. The Christ was saddened by her loss of Christ. Uh, yet, he appeared to them after the resurrection, and he appeared to them after an intense teaching time. He taught them. Remember, that his two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he taught many during those those days before he ascended back to heaven. Shortly after that, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. The church moved ahead in this newfound power. the church grew in its own and, or in its own power uh, as it would take care of those that would come and the people on the outside would understand that they had a desire and a love for God and a love for each other that they did not know. And so the church, even sharing its own material possessions with those among the body who had need. so the church gained favor. The church began to expand and rather rapidly it says in Acts. Some favorable attention was given to the church after this crippled man in Acts chapter 3 was healed. He then proclaimed his beliefs, and that is he proclaimed Christ. Christ is the one who has healed me. But look also to what will happen in the next chapter or two. The disciples now, will see, will be arrested for preaching, for proclaiming the name of Christ. That will certainly throw a damper on things. And after they're forbidden to exercise their faith in public, Then they're arrested again and ordered again not to preach publicly. They're persecuted and one of their leaders, Stephen, if you remember in Acts chapter 7, he is stoned to death. It seems that the church might be taking a turn for the worst. A storm of persecution is brewing. A storm that will last for the next several chapters. And it begs the question, so is the honeymoon over For the church. If it is, then for all of us who have come later, it means grave circumstances. But I want you to see here first, and we'll put it up on the screen for you, the early persecution of the church by the world does not end the marriage of Christ, of the church to Christ. Let me say that again. The early persecution of the church by the world does not end the marriage of the church to Christ. So Peter and John, they've just healed a man in chapter 3. Immediately they begin to explain that it was in Jesus' name that he was healed. So that episode, it said, happened about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the crowd starts to gather. So it's about 4 o'clock, you would guess. And toward the end of the day, the temple gates are about to close. Temple guards begin to make their rounds. They begin to close down the areas. And they discovered this huge mass of people gathered around Peter. And John, but Peter specifically telling them who Christ is. So the mob, they're agitated. The officials are called to the scene. The officials are called out in verse 1 of chapter 4. They're the priests from the tribe of Levi, the temple guards, and the Sadducees. This conglomeration that find these Christians meaning and proclaiming Christ. So they were not just the religious leaders. They were the cultural leaders, the Sadducees, the role models of the day. So there was this man that was the captain of the temple guard. He was admired and respected. And so if you would think of the joint chiefs of staff, the highest Jewish, at least Jewish, military figure of the day. And so there were the Sadducees mentioned back in verse 1. And that was the party, if you remember, that rivaled the Pharisees. The Sadducees were... Equally Jewish and equally ethnic, but they were more progressive, if you would, a progressive party. They were the collaborationists, in other words, who would learn to fudge around the corners and get along with the Roman army. And as long as they worked to get along with the Romans, it was their party, not the Pharisees, that the chief positions of leadership were given. So these Sadducees, they learned over time not to be so terribly Jewish, but more cosmopolitan, if you would, more refined, more friendly. To the Romans. But then the Pharisees, they hated both the Sadducees' compromise and they hated their success because they were very wealthy and aristocratic. On the religious side, the Sadducees had a few distinct doctrines. One was that they didn't believe in life after death. When you passed away, you went into the ground and that was it. Secondly, the Sadducees rejected the full law. They pared it down to just the very bare essentials. So, All of these people arrive at the scene at closing time. The security force wants to go home. They put in their time for the day. They're hungry for supper. No mood for overtime. But the officials noted that these people's people were disturbed. And I want you to note this, and we'll put it up there. It's disturbing if you have crucified Christ to hear that He still is alive. And not only was He still alive... But he was working powerfully. His name was being named powerfully in the streets of the city. So early on in chapter 4 when Peter declares the resurrection of Christ from the dead, they seize him and John because it was evening. They put him into jail uh, until the next day. And so that was in accord with the Jewish law that required that in any serious trial, that trial could only occur in the daylight hours. So they wanted to minimize deceit or scheming. Isn't that interesting that that group looked upon it that way? So Peter and John are in prison and we ask ourselves again, is this honeymoon over? One of the answers to that question is given in verse 4 of chapter 4. In spite of this beginning opposition, even in the face of the onslaught of possible crucifixion for Peter and John, note what happens. It says, many who heard the message believed. And so the number of men grew to be about... Five thousand, And remember, two things about that number. First, there are converts taken from the Jewish pool of citizens who initially were opposed to the Messiahship of Jesus who are now being converted to the faith. Secondly, these growth figures only report the males or the heads of households. So there were about 5,000 male converts, and if you figure that most of them had a wife and assigned to them only a couple of children each, you will easily have 20,000 more people And that's allowing for even small families. So the number could have easily amounted to 30,000 people that were gathered here at the end of the workday at the temple. That may go some of the way to explaining part of the intensity of the opposition that these leaders had to the Jews. And especially the Messianic Jews, the one who believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. So had it been just a small group, a handful, a couple dozen people, they might not have bothered. But this group was so large, they couldn't let this thing get out of hand any longer. So the Sanhedrin gathers. The Sanhedrin is the bigger group. I mentioned the Sadducees earlier and explained who they were. But the Sanhedrin was the rough equivalent of the Supreme Court and their Congress merged together, both Pharisees and Sadducees. It's made up of 70 members and the high priest sat with that group without a vote. It was established two centuries before Christ was born between the Old Testament and the New during the time of the Maccabees. It consisted in some of the most respected leaders of Israel of the day, some Pharisees, some Sadducees, some priests, and some scribes. So furthermore, the high priests are mentioned here. There was a succession of high priests that we can chart in the Gospel of John in here that shows that one family controlled the office of the high priesthood for over 50 years. Annas was the high priest from about 6 B.C. to 18 A.D. And then his son-in-law Caiaphas took over and was high priest until 36 A.D. And Caiaphas, of course, was the high priest who oversaw the trials and the crucifixion of Jesus. So, these high priests, they were a destiny of priests from one family, about six of them over a 70-year period. Sons, sons sons-in-laws, or even nephews were part of this succession, if you would. So the real power behind this dynasty was the high priest, Annas. He had a powerful family, family that was accustomed to prestige, experience, and of course, accustomed to getting their way. They ruled in Jerusalem for decades and at the end of the Gospels and at the time of the book of Acts even. So now this group is gathered and this high priest himself, complete with his family, all gather. So their sole purpose, I'm sure you've heard it before, was to get rid of these religious men. They had already shown that they had the ability to murder. They had murdered Christ himself. So they ask in verse seven in a language that indicates a formal proceeding was going on. They began to question them in an intimidating but yet a legal style of cross examination, if you will. So remember Peter and John had no formal educational training. They were fishermen. So what's going on here is this strong persecution of the world to get rid of the uncomfortable message that Christ is alive. Despite their crucifixion of him. So I would say, could it be that the world won't persecute religion today if that religion brings a comfortable message? The kind of message that intentionally puts Christ on the periphery. But instead, as Christ is proclaimed here, he's proclaimed as risen from the dead. He's proclaimed as reigning from his throne. And you see, the minds gathered here really can't stand to hear that. They really don't want to hear that Christ is alive. It's fresh in their minds. We put Jesus Christ of Nazareth to death. So there's this psychological tendency even among sinful believers, uh, this tendency in sinful societies that wherever people live to get rid of that uncomfortable message about Jesus Christ, that He really is risen from the dead he really is God he really is the judge of the quick and the dead he's the judge of your life he's the judge of your soul he's the judge of your morality and so what we see here is the church being faithful to Christ and it disturbs the world around them so here is Peter preaching Again, remember he preached on the day of Pentecost. He's appearing before this kangaroo court, if you would, that just recently had judged Christ Himself. He, and Peter, intuitively knows where this could end up, and so in his mind, he's probably asking himself, "Is the honeymoon over?" So Peter begins his response in verse eight of chapter four. He tells tells us that it tells us that full of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, "I will answer you by the power and the name that healed this crippled man." And so, it's the equivalent to the Sanhedrin saying, "By what authority do you stand here in our courtyard and create an insurrection? What are your credentials? Who are you?" So, you have to be impressed by Peter under fire. As polite as he was, because most of us, if we're attacked under pressure, we wouldn't respond as kindly or as patiently as he does. You remember that fight or flight reaction that we have when we're accosted. But Peter says, rulers and elders of the people, remember, remember that Peter's not a trained debater, but he structures this debate in such a neat way. And surely he has learned this from Christ himself. But Peter argues, if if we are being called to question for an act of kindness shown to this crippled man, then certainly, certainly we will give you this answer. And the answer is that he was healed by the name of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say, whom for the record you murdered, you crucified, but God raised him from the dead. Amen? This voice echoes the voice of wisdom that Jesus always had when he was confronted by those rulers, by those detractors. Jesus always handled their questions, and now the disciple is doing the same thing. He says, yes, absolutely, confidently, I will give you an answer. If you want to know the physical cure of this crippled man, then be it clear that it was by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is still living. So then Peter turns a little dark here, and sometimes preachers have a way of doing that. He's going to give the gospel, and he's going to give a fuller answer than what the Sanhedrin actually wanted to hear. So not only does he state the authority of Jesus for the miracle that had just been performed in the previous chapter, but you'll note that nowhere throughout here does the Sanhedrin oppose or dispute the validity of this miracle. They had seen that crippled man walking among them. So Peter goes on to reiterate the resurrection and he says, You killed, but God raised up. Furthermore, Peter says, Jesus, whom you rejected, was in reality that long-appointed Messiah who would be the cornerstone, the corner, the foundation of that building, which was written of in Psalm 118. And also Isaiah had predicted it. See, I lay in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And all throughout the Scriptures, Jesus is that cornerstone. You have to recognize that He is the only possible way to salvation. So as we look in chapter 4, verse 12, a verse that's worth committing to memory, He says there is no other way to salvation but through who? Jesus Christ. So students, as you're contemplating going back to school here, remember that when you go back to classes in a few short days, remember that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the only possible way to salvation. There's no other way of salvation. He is the only name in the universe that can save. And so we should honor His name. We should cherish His name. Christ Himself is the only one who is worthy The risen Christ will not go away. He is central to the heart and soul of Christianity. He will not fade. He will not diminish in report, in importance. He cannot and will not disappear even if people ardently try to eliminate his name from the public square. His name hasn't gone away through centuries. It will not go away today. It will not go away in the future. If there is someone who tries to avoid the name of Jesus, who tries to hide from it young or old, rest assured that the risen Christ will not evaporate. He won't disappear into thin air. He is still appearing to and comforting people with his presence. If you think about it, he meets us from week to week in worship by the power of his Word and the power of His Spirit. Any hostile religion that opposes Him can only do one thing, and that is try to intimidate Christians and try to cover up the name of Christ. So the Sanhedrin here, the parliamentarians, if you would, respected leaders, they were dumbfounded. They didn't know what to say initially. They met, and after observing this spellbinding speech, they observed that these apostles were not educated men. So how could they speak like this? The answer is because they knew that they were speaking about Jesus Christ. They knew who they were speaking about. They weren't speaking about somebody else's testimony. They were speaking about how they knew the risen Lord, how they had seen the risen Lord. So the Sanhedrin not only spoke of them as uneducated, but they also used a second word here. And in Greek, the word is "idiotis." And uh, I will let you translate that one. They were common men. They weren't lawyers. They weren't scholars. They weren't doctors. And then they said something highly significant. They noted that these men had been with Christ Himself. He had rubbed off on them. And so I would ask you this day, is there any of that quality in your life? time spent with God in your closet with the word time is spent in prayer and has that time with Christ shown any evidence in your life so from being in the presence of Christ does he rub off on you so they hear this tremendous sermon they see a healed man exhibit a the crippled man is standing right there among them so what do they do They confess Christ and repent of their sins. No, what do they do? They continue in their sin. They went to their executive session. They conferred together. Well, what are we going to do? It seems that this wisdom of man has run up against a brick wall and they realize the evidence was out. So then they resort to force to silence the message of God. It looks like when they bring them back into the chamber and they announce their verdict, they command them, they say, don't you ever speak in public again of this name. So Peter and John knew that the Sanhedrin had power to take their lives from them. Honeymoon over, right? It looks like Satan has brought up an entire army against these poor, untrained idiots. So do you ever feel... As an ambassador for Christ, do you ever feel that way? It seems that surely the honeymoon is over. Certainly the disciples will slink away with their tails between their legs. They will suffer this defeat. And then will they begin to 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 go back into their homes and hide in their homes and begin to think that this Spirit's outpouring. You remember the Spirit's outpouring on the day of Pentecost. Then the Spirit's outpouring the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 that comes up as well. This Spirit's outpouring. They're going to think that that this is only a one or a two-time thing. And then the drudgery of marriage will settle in. But you know the answer and I know the answer. And that is Christ is still living in His church. He gives her an uncompromising commitment to obedience These weak and untrained idiots stand before the most powerful court of the land and they recognize the fact that we must be loyal to God over any man. We're never approved of choosing to seek to follow a man or a woman if it causes us to go against God. The church must stand with God and seek to please Him rather than the people. It was John Knox, the Scottish reformer, who was famous for saying, we must please him who sees rather than men. He goes on, and if we fail to please men, we must give an answer to their court. But if we fail to please him who sees all, we must give an answer in his court. So in this coming week, you got to be aware of these opportunities that present themselves. They may conflict With pleasing God or shrinking and going away and standing down from this challenge. But please remember from our passage today, Acts chapter four, what their response was. And they responded to this court by saying, whatever you say, whatever you say, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we cannot help but speak of what we know to be true about our living Savior. So that's the way to be an effective witness for Christ. It begins internally in your heart. In knowing the risen Lord and His impact on your life. And when that happens, you can't help but speak about it. So these believers are interestingly beginning to look like their Lord in their responses. They're following their leader. They are rejecting human governors. They're being arrested. They are thrown into jail without proper legal proceedings. They appear before the same Sanhedrin. They receive the same unjust legal treatment. They were called unlettered as Jesus was in John chapter 7. They're discouraged from spreading the gospel, but they're blessed and cared for by God, and they are empowered, of course, to proclaim the Word of God. These people that we read about here, these early Christians, they became a powerful source for salt and light. So the honeymoon's not over, and just like in a good marriage, the honeymoon may be completed, but that just begins more wonderful opportunities to live and to love together. So as with the church, so with a godly marriage, the honeymoon is not over. The relationship just matures into grace and forgiveness. Satan, for sure, is behind the scenes at work, but God, through Christ, through the groom or Christ is risen and is still working. So Jesus promised that his disciples, promised his disciples three things, that they would be absurdly joyful in the midst of persecution, that they would be completely fearless and bold, and that they would be constantly in trouble. How's that for a guarantee? So the answer to that question, is the honeymoon over? Assuredly to Satan that the honeymoon is not over. But the same lead character, instead of it being Satan, as Satan would like to be the center of attention, this lead character proves to be the risen Christ before, during, and after all of this was going on. He's working in his church then. He's working in his church now. So he calls you to learn to see that God is at work even in adversity. Even if persecution should arise, the love and care and concern for the bride will never, never, ever Abate. In closing, for all those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, God always loves and cares for His bride. And the church has the same calling as Jesus, that being to suffer for His namesake, to proclaim the gospel, and to triumph by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you that your love for us is not fluctuating, as is the worldly love that is described to us by secular society. We praise you that your calling to us is just beginning, and Father, we would ask that you would send us out with the same boldness of conviction that we witnessed in our passage today to obey God and not man so that we cannot help but speak of what you are doing in our church, what you are doing in our families, what you are doing in our lives. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.